Welcome back to Run the List, a medical education podcast for medical students and all learners. Our hosts are Dr. Naveen Kumar, Dr. Walker Red, Dr. Emily Gutowski, and Joyce Sow. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only and should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Today, I'm really excited to be talking with Dr. David Steensma, an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and attending physician in hematology oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. He's also the editor-in-chief of the American Society of Hematology's Clinical News and has an incredible Twitter account where he educates his followers, myself included, on everything in the world of hematology oncology. We're really quite lucky to be talking to him today about a career in hematology oncology. So thank you so much again, Dr. Steensma, for joining us on Run the List. Thank you for having me, Blake. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and where you did your training? Sure. I went to the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, then went to Mayo Clinic for medicine residency and for fellowship in Hemonc. And then at the end, I went for two years as a postdoc to the Weatherall Institute of Molecular Medicine at the University of Oxford in England, where I studied molecular genetics of myelodysplastic syndromes, which has been a long-term interest. And then I came back and joined the faculty at Mayo. And then in 2009, came to Dana-Farber. Wow. So you've really been all over practicing. A few places. Yeah. (laughs) So would you be able to start by describing kind of the fields of hematology oncology? How are they similar? How are they different? And what are the different training requirements for each? Yes. So hematology and oncology are historically linked because there is some overlap between the types of toxicities that occurred with early treatments for cancer, which were often related to the blood, the sorts of people who were interested in treating cancer and where early therapies for cancer started, which was primarily in the leukemias beginning in the late 1940s. Before that, cancer could only be cured if you could remove it surgically or irradiate it. And so the advent of chemotherapy finally changed that, although it was the 1960s before cures were really routine and the 1970s before medical oncology became a discipline. What happened before that? Well, gastroenterologists took care of patients with GI cancers and pulmonologists took care of patients with lung cancer and ENTs took care of patients with head and neck cancer. And there wasn't really a unified discipline. Hematology is a much older field and it really began in the 1920s as a distinct field here in Boston, actually, with Minot and Murphy and George Whipple, who first figured out how to treat pernicious anemia, which is due to B12 deficiency, we now know, but they had no idea. And they first treated patients with raw liver and saw market improvements. There were many people who died uh, prior to that of pernicious anemia. It was a very dangerous disease, hence the name pernicious. As far as the fellowship requirements, for a long time, there were pure hematology fellowships that people could do. That was the way it was for many years. And then beginning in the 1980s, there were more and more combined training programs with hematology and medical oncology. And then the the paradigm shifted to the point where hematology-only training fellowships are actually quite rare. There's less than three of them in the country right now. So a lot of those hematology fellowships have disappeared over the years. 
issues, partly because there's a perception that as a pure hematologist without training in medical oncology, for the last 25, 30 years, it's been difficult to get a job outside of certain academic settings. And so that was the perception. That being said, there's really in recent years been a bit of a resurgence in hematology. In order to finish a hematology-oncology fellowship and be able to be eligible in both, it's a three-year fellowship where you have to have a full year of clinical oncology and then at least six months of hematology, which includes things like bone marrow transplantation and coagulation and blood banking and some hematopathology. Then the other 18 months can be spent in research or additional clinical training if somebody's so inclined. Uh, around Dana-Farber, everybody does research of some sort, usually in a, a, a wet laboratory. And some programs, though, then allow you to extend the fellowship. The Mayo Fellowship is actually four years. It was a little bit of a peculiar fellowship in that you had three years of clinical training. They felt like a year or a year and a half wasn't enough. And then the fourth year was an elective year that you could use for research training. It was a different different focus of training. People can get out of the Mayo Clinic Fellowship now in three years. That fourth year has become optional, but it really wasn't when I went through. Wow. Thank you for that historical discussion of the field. So what, what interested you in hematology oncology? I got interested as a first-year medical student in hematology. I really enjoyed looking at blood smears and bone marrows under the microscope, and I thought that was really interesting. But what was really inspirational to me was a guy named John Oltman, and uh, he's died now, but he was a very charismatic teacher, had been a refugee from the rise of German National Socialism in the 30s, and he presented hematology in a very global scheme, you know, as everything from thalassemia to sickle cell to hemalignancies. And, and he was also a medical oncologist. His focus was on lymphomas. And that was a, a really interesting mixture to me. So I ended up becoming a somewhat a devotee of John Altman and actually ended up just by chance rotating with him as a third-year student and very inspirational few weeks. And so that was really it for me. You know, interestingly, as in retrospect, as a small child, I had been interested in treatment of cancer and I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. And then, you know, dreams like that sometimes go astray. And I got very interested in physics and I wanted to do astronomy and astrophysics. And that was actually my undergrad major. Uh, and then I, I came back to uh, medicine and then uh, rediscovered hematology and oncology. That's quite the journey from astrophysics to looking at heme spheres to now being a practicing oncologist. So could you tell us a little bit about the types of hemonc patients that you see? So I see a mix of patients. You know, I've always been interested in both what used to be called benign hematology, but now people prefer the term classical hematology, uh, meaning hematology diseases that are not malignant. That being said, my focus is on myelodysplastic syndromes, myeloid leukemias, and inherited marrow failure syndromes that predispose to that, things like like Fanconi anemia, dyskeratosis congenita, Schwachmann-Diamond syndrome. Increasingly, my clinical focus has been on a state called clonal hematopoiesis, which is incredibly common. There's at least 30 million people in the U.S. that have it. And it turns out it's a big risk factor for cardiovascular disease as well as developing a subsequent overt hematologic malignancy. So that's been an interest as well. 
That's super interesting hearing more about clonal hematopoiesis. You know, in medical school and first year, we're now learning about CHIP and as you mentioned about its interaction with other organ systems, particularly the heart. And so could you talk about how the onboarding almost of a new field into a field that you've been practicing for some time now and, and what that's like to kind of have a shifting focus potentially in your clinical career? Well, when I was a medical student, you know, I was told that uh, half of the things I was learning would turn out not to be true, <laughs> but we, we just didn't know which half it would be. And the other thing that one of the very wise professors said was that, you know, throughout your life, there'll be new things described. You you may even have a role in describing them. And that turned out to be true in my case with respect to clonal hematopoiesis. You know, as we age, cells in our body are accumulating somatic mutations. And for the most part, they're inconsequential. But certain genes, if they get mutated in the wrong place, they give that cell a survival advantage or a proliferative advantage or both. And if you get enough mutations in the wrong places, it becomes a, a cancer. What's different about clonal hematopoiesis, which means blood stem cells that are getting these mutations, is that the blood circulates. And so these clonal cells can interact with other cells of the body, and particularly with endothelium. And these mutant cells that have certain clonal mutations in, in genes such as DNMT3A or TET2 that affect chromatin remodeling and epigenetic patterning, you know, they, they become pro-inflammatory. They monocyte circulate, they uh, become macrophages in the endothelium, and they are pro-inflammatory and set up atherogenic plaques or make those plaques expand or make them more likely to rupture. And it's just as much a risk factor for having a heart attack or a stroke as uh, having a high LDL cholesterol or being a cigarette smoker. So, but, but these states are happening everywhere. And in fact, now it's well described in colon and esophagus and brain and liver and, and these, these pre-malignant clonal proliferations that occur with aging, they just happen to have anatomical constraints that the blood doesn't. And so that's why blood is a little different. That's super fascinating and a really satisfying pathophysiology. So shifting to maybe a more academic question, what's your breakdown between academic activities, clinical practice, medical education and teaching um, and, and anything else you may do? Yeah. So at the moment, I'm somewhere between 50 and 60 percent clinical, which means I have three half day sessions a week of clinic and I attend on the inpatient service at Brigham and Women's Hospital on one of the hematologic malignancy services six or seven weeks out of the year. What else do I do? I am an endowed chair in MDS research, and so that takes up some of my time, both clinical trials and some translational work. I also have a couple of administrative roles with respect to our Dana-Farber network. And then I help with tumor boards and education and certain aspects of policy. And so that's, uh, that's the other hat that I wear. On my own time, I edit the American Society of Hematology's clinical newspaper. The American Society of Hematology formed in the late 1950s, and it's the predominant professional society for hematologists. I remember being a first year medical student and I was in the library and I saw this journal called Blood and I thought what a funny name for a journal and, and just down the row from it was one called Brain and there was another one called Gut and, and it turns out that some of these journals with the most blunt titles actually 
actually have the highest impact factors. Um, <laughs> and Blood is one of the journals of the American Society of Hematology. It's their oldest and their, their highest impact journal. Yeah, these flagship journals just get really to the point when you look at the cover. <laughs> right. So yeah, so as, as I alluded to in the intro, you have phenomenal written work, an editor-in-chief of Ash Clinical News, and kind of a very active Twitter account in which you publish your hematology tweet story series. So could you talk a little bit more about your writing? When did you start writing? How do you balance everything you mentioned before as your you know day job as a clinician and endowed chair with really informative writing. Yeah, you know, I was the editor of my high school newspaper and, you know, the high school yearbook, and I edited an arts magazine in college. And so it's something I've always been interested in. Medical school, we had a medical student newspaper, and I wrote some columns for that. But, you know, it's something that I've, I've always enjoyed doing is writing, not just scientific papers, which, you know, are certainly a certain type of writing, but also essays. You know, I've written essays in... JAMA and in the Annals of Internal Medicines on being a doctor section. And in uh, the Journal of Clinical Oncology, we have this section called the Art of Oncology about uh, medical humanism and sometimes about ethics and telling patient stories. I think early on, my mentor saw it as something uh, that might be a bit of a distraction, but it has done probably more for helping me professionally than I ever could have imagined. You make connections with people through your writing and you know then maybe they invite you to their center to give a talk and that goes well and you know you get invited to give a talk at the national society and you know one thing leads to another so the writing has i think really been helpful for me and and has not been a distraction from the other types of work yeah that's really great to hear we had another physician writer on the podcast in our cardiology series dr lisa rosamond also at brigham women's oh and wow she's awesome and she she talked about a similar concept about how the writing kind of blends into her clinical work in a way of both helping process, but also helping network with other physicians, but also maybe even some of her patients. So maybe shifting gears slightly, could you talk a little bit about how your career has changed over time? and about what you love about hematology oncology as a field. My career has absolutely changed over time. You know, when I came back to Mayo after being a postdoc and, you know, having very little patient care and being 98% in the lab in the UK, I had a K award from the NIH, which protected 80% of my time. I had a lab and then things were going okay. And, and I have nothing but good things to say about Mayo Clinic, but there weren't a ton of other people there that were trying to do something similar to what I was doing. So it was a bit challenging. And then in 2008, there was a big downturn with respect to funding, philanthropic funding. So, so I started getting a little restless. And then Gary Gilliland, who was then at Brigham and Women's and Rich Stone at Dana-Farber, reached out and said, you know, we have a positioning opening up at Dana-Farber. Would you like to do that? It was originally going to be, I think, something kind of similar to what I was doing at Mayo, maybe a little bit more clinically. And then Gary left to go to Merck just after I signed my contract. So I ended up having a much more clinically heavy appointment, which was was totally fine. And then I would say about four years ago, I was really struggling in terms of the mix that I had being on leukemia call and night after night getting calls all night long was really draining on me. My phys- 
physician assistant who was super helpful left. And so I asked if I could have a little bit of a different mix. And thankfully, the chair of my department was accommodating. And that's how I ended up doing this liaison role and changing my mixture a little bit. And then other funding came through. You know, it changes over time. I think what my focus has been, and I think for most people that will change over over time, over the course of their career. I, I had colleagues who, you know, became oncology doctors and then midway through their career decided they, they would focus on palliative care or the policy or something else. So I think it does change over time. As far as what I like about heme and hemonc, you know, it's such an exciting, rapidly moving field. In hematology in particular, the tissue has always been so accessible that it's really led the way in terms of understanding a lot of the biology of cancer and developing targeted therapies and precision medicines. You know, the number of new drugs for cancers and new discoveries in cancer biology has just grown by leaps and bounds over the last 15 to 20 years. And so it's been a super exciting time to be part of this field. And I have to say, I think our residents and our students feel that because Hemonc has really become tremendously popular and, and it's made it a little bit more competitive to get into fellowships and such. But, you know, things things have really changed. I will say, since you're speaking at the medical student level, Hemonc is not the only way to get into cancer medicine for people interested in that. You know, radiation oncology is still a very viable field. Surgical oncology has grown and the surgeons do their own trials now and it's a really thriving field. And in gynecology, there's a certain subset of people who will focus on gynecologic oncology. And so that's another pathway in, as well as palliative care medicine, which some people do oncology fellowships first, others go straight into palliative care outside of an internal medicine residency. So things have changed. Absolutely. So why don't we close and maybe I could ask you one or two more questions, both about the field and about your career. You just spoke at the medical student level. What, what do you wish you knew as a medical student regarding your future career? And did you ever imagine you'd be doing the things you're doing now back when you were a student? I think it would have been hard to imagine as a student what it was going to be like. But even then, we knew that this was a time in which things were going to be changing rapidly and there would be exciting developments. And so, so I think that's been very exciting. You know, one of the things I really like about Hemonc is the relationship that you form with patients. It is a really deep connection, intense connection. You, you take on some aspects of the primary care doctor in that when somebody is going through active treatment, if there's a symptom or something new that happens, you're often the first person to manage it. You're doing the diagnostic work, but you also, you're a specialist and you have a narrow focus that allows you to understand an area very deep. Deeply. I think that the biggest challenges in the years to come are going to be the, the huge amount of information that folks are expected to absorb, the you know, changes in practice models. But you know, one thing I, I sometimes met along my way, people who were kind of disgruntled about their job. And I, I still think despite all the challenges in medicine, this is a, an amazing profession and we can make such a difference for people. And I feel that, you know, every day that I see people in in my clinic or, or communicate with them, you know, is there are big challenges and there are sorrows, but it is a, a very satisfying career. 
Wow. Thank you for that wonderful message. I, th- I think maybe we'll close on that just because I-, I think I learned a lot from kind of the stories they're in. This has been such a fun conversation and so helpful to learn from you and kind of your journey to become a hematologist oncologist. And I want to thank you so much for joining us in this episode of Run the List. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Blake. And I, I hope this is useful for your audience. If anybody wants to reach out to me, feel free to do so. If you like this episode and want to continue learning with us, please subscribe and consider leaving us a rating and review to let us know how we're doing. Also, be sure to check out our weekly handouts and tutorial summaries on our website and our Twitter for helpful graphics and space repetition of episode content. See you next time.